appendix part fourteen of the world as will and idea volume two by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine appendix criticism of the kantian philosophy part fourteen we will examine the thing however somewhat more closely and ask the question anew what are the forms of thought one thought consists throughout of judging judgments are the threads of its whole web for without making use of a verb our thought does not move and as often as we use a verb we judge two every judgment consists in the recognition of the relation between subject and predicate which it separates or unites with various restrictions it unites them from the recognition of the actual identity of the two which can only happen in the case of synonyms then in the recognition that the one is always thought along with the other though the converse does not hold in the universal affirmative proposition up to the recognition that the one is sometimes thought along with the other in the particular affirmative proposition the negative propositions take the opposite course accordingly in every judgment the subject the predicate and the copula the latter affirmative or negative must be to be found even although each of these is not denoted by a word of its own as is however generally the case the predicate and the copula are often denoted by one word as caius ages sometimes one word denotes all three as concurritur that is the armies engage from this it is evident that the forms of thought are not to be sought for precisely and directly in words nor even in the parts of speech for even in the same language the same judgment may be expressed in different words and indeed in different parts of speech yet the thought remains the same and consequently also its form for the thought could not be the same if the form of thought itself were different but with the same thought and the same form of thought the form of words may very well be different for it is merely the outward clothing of the thought which on the other hand is inseparable from its form thus grammar only explains the clothing of the forms of thought the parts of speech can therefore be deduced from the original forms of thought themselves which are independent of all language their work is to express these forms of thought in all their modifications they are the instrument and the clothing of the forms of thought and must be accurately adapted to the structure of the latter so that it may be recognized in them three these real unalterable original forms of thought are certainly those of kant's logical table of judgments only that in this table are to be found blind windows for the sake of symmetry and the table of the categories these must all be omitted and also a false arrangement thus a quality affirmation and negation that is combination and separation of concepts two forms it depends on the copula b quantity the subject concept is taken either in whole or in part totality or multiplicity to the first belong also individual subject socrates means all socrateses thus two forms it depends on the subject c modality has really three forms it determines the quality as necessary actual or contingent it consequently depends also on the copula 
these three forms of thought spring from the laws of thought of contradiction and identity but from the principle of sufficient reason and the law of excluded middle springs d relation it only appears if we judge concerning completed judgments and can only consist in this that it either asserts the dependence of one judgment upon another also in the plurality of both and therefore combines them in the hypothetical proposition or else asserts that judgments exclude each other and therefore separates them in the disjunctive proposition it depends on the copula which here separates or combines the completed judgments the parts of speech in grammatical forms are ways of expressing the three constituent parts of the judgment the subject the predicate and the copula and also of the possible relations of these thus of the forms of thought just enumerated and the fuller determinations and modifications of these substantive adjective and verb are therefore essential fundamental constituent elements of language in general therefore they must be found in all languages yet it is possible to conceive a language in which adjective and verb would always be fused together as is sometimes the case in all languages provisionally it may be said for the expression of the subject are intended the substantive the article and the pronoun for the expression of the predicate the adjective the adverb and the preposition for the expression of the copula the verb which however with the exception of the verb to be also contains the predicate it is the task of the philosophy of grammar to teach the precise mechanism of the expression of the forms of thought as it is the task of logic to teach the operations with the forms of thought themselves note as a warning against a false path and to illustrate the above i mention s stern's vorläufige grundlage zur sprachphilosophie eighteen thirty five which is an utterly abortive attempt to construct the categories out of the grammatical forms he has entirely confused thought with perception and therefore instead of the categories of thought he has tried to deduce the supposed categories of perception from the grammatical forms and consequently has placed the grammatical forms in direct relation to perception he is involved in the great error that language is immediately related to perception instead of being directly related only to thought as such thus to the abstract concepts and only by means of these to perception to which they however have a relation which introduces an entire change of the form what exists in perception thus also the relations which proceed from time and space certainly becomes an object of thought thus there must also be forms of speech to express it yet always merely in the abstract as concepts concepts are always the primary material of thought and the forms of logic are always related to these never directly to perception perception always determines only the material never the formal truth of the proposition for the formal truth is determined according to the logical rules alone i return to the kantian philosophy and come now to the transcendental dialectic kant opens it with the explanation of reason the faculty which is to play the principal part in it for hitherto only sensibility and understanding were on the scene when considering his different explanations of reason i have already spoken above of the explanation he gives here that it is the faculty of principles it is now taught here that all the a priori knowledge hitherto considered 
which makes pure mathematics and pure natural science possible affords only rules and no principles because it proceeds from perceptions and forms of knowledge and not from mere conceptions which is demanded if it is to be called a principle such a principle must accordingly be knowledge from pure conceptions and yet synthetical but this is absolutely impossible from pure conceptions nothing but analytical propositions can ever proceed if conceptions are to be synthetically and yet a priori combined this combination must necessarily be accomplished by some third thing through a pure perception of the formal possibility of experience just as synthetic judgments a posteriori are brought about through empirical perception consequently a synthetic proposition a priori can never proceed from pure conceptions in general however we are a priori conscious of nothing more than the principle of sufficient reason in all its different forms and therefore no other synthetic judgments a priori are possible than those which proceed from that which receives its content from that principle however kant finally comes forward with a pretended principle of the reason answering to his demand yet only with this one from which others afterwards follow as corollaries it is the principle which christopher wolf set up and explained in his cosmologia section one chapter two section ninety three and in his ontologia section one seventy eight as now above under the title of the amphiboly mere leibnizian philosophemes were taken for natural and necessary aberrations of the reason and were criticised as such so here precisely the same thing happens with the philosophemes of wolf kant still presents this principle of the reason in an obscure light through indistinctness indefiniteness and breaking of it up page three o seven three sixty one and three twenty two three seventy nine clearly expressed however it is as follows if the conditioned is given the totality of its conditions must also be given and therefore also the unconditioned through which alone that totality becomes complete we become most vividly aware of the apparent truth of this proposition if we imagine the conditions and the conditioned as the links of a suspended chain the upper end of which however is not visible so that it might extend ad infinitum since however the chain does not fall but hangs there must be above one link which is the first and in some way is fixed or more briefly the reason desires to have a point of attachment for the causal chain which reaches back to infinity it would be convenient for it but we will examine the proposition not in figures but in itself synthetic it certainly is for analytically nothing more follows from the conception of the conditioned than that of the condition it has not however a priori truth nor even a posteriori but it surreptitiously obtains its appearance of truth in a very subtle way which i must now point out immediately and a priori we have the knowledge which the principle of sufficient reason in its four forms expresses from this immediate knowledge all abstract expressions of the principle of sufficient reason are derived and they are thus indirect still more however is this the case with inferences or corollaries from them i have already explained above how abstract knowledge often unites a variety of intuitive cognitions in one form or one concept in such a way that they can no longer be distinguished therefore abstract knowledge stands to intuitive knowledge 
as the shadow to the real objects the great multiplicity of which it presents through one outline comprehending them all now the pretended principle of the reason makes use of this shadow in order to deduce from the principle of sufficient reason the unconditioned which directly contradicts it it prudently abandons the immediate concrete knowledge of the content of the principle of sufficient reason in its particular forms and only makes use of abstract concepts which are derived from it and have value and significance only through it in order to smuggle its unconditioned somehow or other into the wide sphere of those concepts its procedure becomes most distinct when clothed in dialectical form for example thus if the conditioned exists its condition must also be given and indeed all given thus completely thus the totality of its conditions consequently if they constitute a series the whole series consequently also its first beginning thus the unconditioned here it is false that the conditions of a conditioned can constitute a series rather must the totality of the conditions of everything conditioned be contained in its nearest ground or reason from which it directly proceeds and which is only thus a sufficient ground or reason for example the different determinations of the state which is the cause all of which must be present together before the effect can take place but the series for example the chain of causes arises merely from the fact that we regard what immediately before was the condition as now a conditioned but then at once the whole operation begins again from the beginning and the principle of sufficient reason appears anew with its claim but there can never be for a conditioned a properly successive series of conditions which exist merely as such and on account of that which is at last conditioned it is always an alternating series of conditioned and conditions as each link is laid aside the chain is broken and the claim of the principle of sufficient reason entirely satisfied it arises anew because the condition becomes the conditioned thus the principle of sufficient reason always demands only the completeness of the immediate or next condition never the completeness of a series but just this conception of the completeness of the condition leaves it undetermined whether this completeness should be simultaneous or successive and since the latter is chosen the demand now arises for a complete series of conditions following each other only through an arbitrary abstraction is a series of causes and effects regarded as a series of causes alone which exists merely on account of the last effect and is therefore demanded as its sufficient reason from closer and more intelligent consideration and by rising from the indefinite generality of abstraction to the particular definite reality it appears on the contrary that the demand for a sufficient reason extends only to the completeness of the determinations of the immediate cause not to the completeness of a series the demand of the principle of sufficient reason is completely extinguished in each sufficient reason given it arises however immediately anew because this reason is again regarded as a consequent but it never demands directly a series of reasons if on the other hand instead of going to the thing itself we confine ourselves to the abstract concepts these distinctions vanish then a chain of alternating causes and effects or of alternating logical reasons and consequence is given out as simply a chain of causes of the last effect or reasons of the last consequent 
and the completeness of the conditions through which alone a reason becomes sufficient appears as the completeness of that assumed series of reasons alone which only exist on account of the last consequent there then appears the abstract principle of the reason very boldly with its demand for the unconditioned but in order to recognize the invalidity of this claim there is no need of a critique of reason by means of antinomies and their solution but only of a critique of reason understood in my sense an examination of the relation of abstract knowledge to direct intuitive knowledge by means of ascending from the indefinite generality of the former to the fixed definiteness of the latter from such a critique then it here appears that the nature of the reason by no means consists in the demand for an unconditioned for whenever it proceeds with full deliberation it must itself find that an unconditioned is an absurdity end of appendix part fourteen recording by expatriate in bangor maine